want to say? What would you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! Grief can't be all negative and sad. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Good Days, Bad Days podcast. I am Rachel Vonnie, and here with me is a very special guest, Kimberly Sandstrom. She is an amazing therapist, and uh, she was actually my therapist, and I really appreciate her coming on and talking to us about grief and also grief in the context of divorce. Um, That is, as a, a licensed marriage and family therapist, that is a focus of hers, and she also has a um i'll let i'll let you talk to her about it uh we'll we'll kind of get into that about classy girls guide to divorce and kind of what that is and we have also are just gonna kind of chat about divorce and grief and loss and all those things kind of combined so without further ado here is kimberly sandstrom hi Hi, thanks, Rachel. I appreciate being here. And um, let me just say as a as a disclosure to the world, because I do have a legal ethical boundary. Um, even though I was your therapist, it's been enough time period that's passed that we can actually do this together. And I love that we can because you we each have an intimate um, knowledge of each other's journey, mine with divorce, yours with death and, and loss of, of your husband and your daughter. So I love that we get to collaborate. This is fun. Yeah, it's great. And you've helped me so much. I've actually mentioned you a couple times in the podcast, uh, specifically as my therapist said X, Y, or Z. And uh, it's you've been such a great resource for me in dealing with loss and uh, a couple things moving forward into a new normal. And so tell us a little bit about what your focus is and what you do. So I originally started as a couples therapist, and my goal was to help keep couples together. And during the course of all that, you know, in in my couples work, um, I love working with couples. I specialize in infidelity, um, you know, which is a tough, tough, tough when couples come in. And my heart's always been to help couples reconcile, refine their closeness and, um, and, and that kind of thing. I also work with individuals, obviously. Uh, the base of my work was at San Diego Hospice when I was training, and that that grief work there has informed my entire practice because grief shows up, as you well know on your podcast, grief shows up in a lot of things. When we lose any kind of loss, brings grief, whether it's a loss of a dream, a loss of a spouse, a loss of a child, a loss of a marriage. And that's, you know, that's where my grief journey has been the biggest in the last five years. Um, since my divorce, I realized that there, there's a, if, the, if you can say this, there's a better way to do it. There's a better way to, um, there's a book called Consciously Uncoupling that really um, informed, has informed me on how to act on my end. And, you know, I shared a 27-year marriage with my ex-husband. We have three grown children and it wasn't always bad. And so I have a deep respect for him as a father and as my ex-spouse, and I've tried to carry that into our interactions as much as I can. Um, definitely not perfect. We'll talk about some of my mistakes that I've made in this journey, but that's that's kind of my focus. I work with individuals, couples, and I do have a new part of my practice of the last five years where I'm working with um, individuals who are divorcing or couples that are divorcing to help them navigate it a little bit differently and better. 
That's great. And so needed. And I totally agree with you coming from a mediation background, which which you know of uh, divorce mediation. And I still work a lot in that space. And I totally agree. There is a better way of doing it and you can still respect each other and you can walk out of it um, with a different attitude than say, you know, litigation and fighting everything to the nail. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So with your clients that are going through a divorce, what are some common feelings of grief that they communicate? So there's two, there's two different schools on grief and I tend to follow warden's tasks of grieving. Um, are you familiar with that? I'm not sure. A little bit, but why don't, why don't you um, give a rundown for people okay. who are listening? So warden's tasks of grieving, uh, started out, he has a book on it and it's, I learned it in hospice and it's different than the sadness, anger, denial, bargaining stages. Um, it's not a linear process. So there's four, uh, four, um, tasks of grieving. And I like even how his language, he languages it. Number one is accepting the reality of the loss. Number two is processing the pain. Number three is adjusting to life without the person, or in this case in divorce, life, your life as it was. And then the last one is to find an enduring connection with, and in this case, my marriage that's allowed me to move forward. And that's one of the hardest things because there's so many varying, you know, unlike losing a spouse where the spouse dies, there's so many varying reasons why divorce happens. Some people want it, some people don't. So in the process of of these tasks, at any moment in time, and you can probably relate to this, Rachel, any moment in time, we're in one of those. And, you know, there can be days, even now, as I'm in an amazing relationship and I've, you know, I've worked on myself in the last five years, I can find myself still grieving and thinking about like, oh, you know, I remember when our family was intact and, you know, the holidays were just easier and we didn't have this blended family thing. And I can still hold the the love and care that I have now along with the you know, the, the grief. And so at any point in time, we can be in anyone. And that's why I like it. It's because it's not a linear, you have to go through the, you know, just to the reality of the loss and then move on to the next one, like the sadness, denial, bargaining, all that. So I've kind of thrown that one out the window, not like it's, it's a bad process, but just really identified with, with these tasks of grieving. So the, to answer your question, the common, the most common thing that clients come in with is fear, fear of, being alone, fear of losing relationship with their children, fear of, you know, never finding a partner again. And part of that comes from the grief process of being alone or, or, the, or the perception that we're alone um, once our marriage ends. Um, the, other, the other common thing is, is um, anger, you know, anger coming in and, and, you know, whether it's a divorce that you wanted uh, you know, we have this Pollyanna view sometimes that, oh, every, you know, if I act this way, and especially the person who wanted the divorce will often go into the process with, oh, well, you know, they'll be on the same page and we'll figure it out. But remember, the person who wanted the divorce started grieving long before the marriage ended. So their grief process is further along. The person who finds out, oh, I want a divorce, that other partner, their grief process starts from that moment. And mm-hmm. so it's, they're not on the, they're not equally yoked along the way. And so anger comes up and that, you know, anger, I think is an umbrella that covers fear and sadness. Um, So those are, and sadness, you know, so anger, fear, and sadness are the three emotions that I see 
most often when clients first come in. And when spouses are on different footing, so, you know, one person, like you said, might be further along in that grief process than the other person. How do you have any advice on how to properly communicate with each other so that maybe you're in a different grief space, but how do you respect where they are while also being able to communicate with them about things you need to talk about? Good question. That's a tough one. It's really a tough one. And I always call it a muscle building exercise. So there's a reason that you're divorcing, whether you wanted it or not. And oftentimes spouses end up turning towards each other, assuming that they're going to get some understanding while they're in this breaking up process. And for me, both personally and professionally, the best way to navigate through it is to get support for the emotional process of of detaching from the marriage so that when you're in the legal process, those emotions, you feel them, but you're not making decisions and reacting with those emotions during the process. And so, you know, support, whether it's through a coach, whether it's through a therapist, whether it's through a, you know, divorce support group, those can all be really helpful to navigate the emotions, process them so that you're not spilling those onto the person that you're divorcing. And that's hard. I've, I've made mistakes in that and reacted to my ex-husband um, in moments of distress and feeling, you know, scared. And then he's also done the same. And so for me, I began a journey of like, okay, how do I take the high road? And I actually wrote a blog on that, how to take the high road. And part of it, and your, your listeners may not like this, part of it is stepping into the other person's shoes and saying, gosh, what's in their mucky pond? They're going through this too. There's lots of different sides and without getting into all the different sides of people, you know, the payer, if there's spousal support, the person receiving who may feel cheated and all of those things come up. But navigating it is really looking at like, I'm going to do a step above and I'm going to take the high road and I'm going to step in with a place of compassion. Also boundaries, boundaries are the other way too. setting boundaries for yourself. I don't answer emails or text messages for 24 hours. If I know I'm not in a space that, you know, cause I don't know what the text message or the email is going to say. Mm-hmm. So I put it aside until I, I made the mistake in the beginning of like immediately looking at the text message right before going into session with a client. Ooh, big mistake, big mistake. Cause I, oftentimes it would be something, you know, negative that I had to deal with. And then I'm, I'm not in a great space with my client. So clients uh, like, why is she mad at me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually I have a really good poker face and, and I can, you know, I've learned to navigate that as well. So I, I set boundaries for myself. I don't read texts and emails regarding the divorce or regarding, um, you know, anything from my ex-spouse for until a time when I can sit down and I'm in a space, no matter what shows up or how I get triggered that I can deal with it. Yeah. And I think that's important too, with dealing with family members that maybe um, have their own opinions about your divorce. I -hmm. feel like that kind of brings me to another topic with grief too, is when you are going through something big, whether it be a loss of a spouse due to death, a loss of a spouse um, due to divorce, friends and family will throw their opinions and you don't always want to hear them um, or you lose friends and you are losing 
essentially a, a side of your family as well. I know that some people still t- stay in touch with their in-laws, especially if they have children together and things like that. But that support is different. It's it's a different feel. And so how do you deal with that, with the kind of changing relationships uh, after you decide to split? So that's another part of the grieving process. Like you said, Rachel, it's, um, it's difficult. I was very close to my ex-husband's family. We did most of our holidays. My children, that's all they knew is most of our holidays were with that side of the family because they lived in town. And that was a big adjustment. Um, I don't, my parents are gone. Um, I don't have family here in town. I've had to create family. And so that was a huge adjustment for me. And you mentioned, uh, People, to, uh, people giving advice. One of the things I advise my clients to do is let's start working on listening to your gut because you are, you are in, you have been in this intimate relationship with this person and you know, history will tell you how they're acting, how they're going to act. I had people say, you know, sock away your money and hide checks in your desk. And, you know, when you get from clients and just, you know, do that because their divorce was awful. And I'm glad I kept staying with my compass, which said, that's not what I would experience. That's not what I'm experiencing. I'm going to trust until I have a reason not to. And I kept, I kept along that side. And I had one friend, my best friend, who has been along the journey with me since I was 15. So she also knew my ex-husband and she knew the dynamics. And she would say, yeah, Kim, you've got to go with your gut. Because if I listened to everybody else, I would have really messed up my divorce. I really would have messed up my own psyche. And I had to learn to trust my gut. No, this is not who he is. And so I'm going to trust that. And I'm not going to hide checks in my desk and squirrel away money here. And um, it's, it has served me really well, but I had to learn to trust it. So in regards to that, um, all the advice I tell my clients, let's look at what you know about past history with this person. Let's trust that, whether it's good or bad, and let's make a decision for you. And I, we do a lot of processing around that. What would it be like if this happened? What would it be like? You know, what, what is your gut telling you? Um, you know, is it fear related? Is it, you know, driven by fear? And we process all of that so that they can make decisions for themselves that they can go to sleep at night and feel good about because that's the main, that's, that's a big thing is wrestling with it. The anxiety can be really high when you're going through a business transaction, a legal divorce with an emotional component. Whew. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure when you went through your grief process, you're having to do all the social security stuff for Tommy and, and your daughter and navigating all the business. And it's, you talk about a, a grief fog in one mm-hmm. of your episodes, total grief fog. It's the same thing. And that's where I, I reached out and I had resources. I had three, three girls on speed dial that I was, I was calling almost every day for a period of time. And I had three because one of them would have been overburdened with me calling them all the time. <laughs> That's so smart. I highly recommend having a few people, um, like a, a village of people that you can call and, and vent to. And these were all three women who knew me as a person and would challenge me, didn't always agree with me about my assessment or my perceptions of what was happening. And they told me the truth. Kim, this is something that you need to work on or, you know, hey, that makes sense. That would have hurt. And so there was a lot of validation. And, and you know, one of the tips that I give clients is co-burdening and co-burdening with a professional to process those feelings that you talk about is because it is, it's hard. People don't want to choose sides. 
but they end up gravitating towards one spouse or the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, would you like me to talk about that? Because I think it's yeah. a big thing in the grieving process. It, it, it really is. I think I've heard from so many people, they're like, I just, I lost so many friends. I lost a lot of support, especially maybe initially everyone's like rallying and I'll be here for you. Let me know. And then it just kind of trickles off. So yeah, let, let's talk about it. So we need to understand that families naturally are going to gravitate towards bloodlines. They just do. Not always. I've, I've had some divorce clients where, you know, the in-laws or the in-law family has kind of taken their side um, in a sense. Um, that wasn't the case with us. You know, my ex's family has been very uh, respectful and uh, very kind to me. You know, yes, we share three children together. Maybe that's why. Uh, but they've been, you know, they've been kind and, and I appreciate that. I don't necessarily see or talk to them often, but there's a natural gravitation. I also know, and I actually just wrote this in an email to someone where I said, this is the part of divorce that I hate. There's many parts, but I hate is that people are going to gravitate towards one or the other based on, and they're going to see the other spouse through the, my, like they're going to see my ex-spouse through my lens. And so I know that in the beginning, both my ex-husband and I, because we communicated about it after the fact, we both said to our different camps, you know, he is, I want you to respect him. He said, I want you to respect her. She's the mother of my children. I want you to respect him. He's the father of my children. And we set it up so that our, our network could feel safe. We also shared with them, you can have us in the same space. This is what I communicated anyways. You can have us in the same space. We'll navigate our stuff offline. We, there's not going to be any show of like, you know, blow ups or anything like that. And I've really worked hard on keeping my, my grievances and my emotions to the side when we do go end up at the same, you know, Christmas party every year, because we've always done that for 22 years. We show up, we show up with our other significant others and we can navigate and be polite and kind to each other and and take the high road. But people do take sides. Friends. So it was a slow, gradual process, in my opinion, for us. Um, In the beginning, we both got invited to things. Some people, this is a big thing I'm sure you experienced. People are so uncomfortable Mm-hmm. with with divorce and loss absolutely and they don't know what to say they assume that you're celebrating it a lot of people assume like yay your divorce is final and i was like that is not my framework some people i, I totally respect that because then it, it depends on the marriage and the breakup and all of that mm-hmm. i didn't have that experience i was not celebrating you know, each February when that date comes up of when the divorce was final, I take a time to reflect and it's sad. And I think about the past that we had. So not all my friends understood that. So I had to set a boundary for myself that people come out of the woodwork like, oh, let's go have coffee. They want the gossip of divorce. Mm-hmm. And I was not about that. I was not, I didn't want to sit down. I had my close confidence. And so I had to often say, you know, I'm not really, I really don't want to bond over divorce. So when you're through your process, you know, I'm happy to sit down and talk about, you know, talk about our children and our life, but I don't want to sit and and dish about the divorce. It it just wasn't my framework. I didn't, it just, it didn't keep me in a, a good space and I just don't think that's a way to bond with people anyways. (laughs) I have a question for Mm -hmm. you about, being in the same space after a divorce. I know from a grief perspective on loss, whenever certain things happen or whenever there's like a anniversary or a date that comes up that reminds me of, you know, Tommy or Charlie, 
I get triggered and it can kind of start this cascading symptoms of grief all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you experience, do you experience those in those situations where you said, you know, you go to the Christmas party every year and how do you handle them? So I'll be honest. Um, it's still a little bit awkward and my goal is to help. (laughs) This is just me. I give of myself. My goal is to help my friends feel comfortable with seeing both of us in the same space. So I, I will approach my ex-husband and say, hello, how are you? How are things going? Um, you know, if he's with someone, you know, introduce myself or if I've met them before, you know, just say, hi, how are you? Know a little bit about them, you know, how are your children? And I try to make it really safe, but it's awkward at times. It's, you know, especially, and this may be the same for you, Rachel, is we're in a familiar place that we've always like sat together on the couch. And um, my friends, if they ever listen to this, will laugh because I, I still claim that spot on the couch. <laughs> I just sit with different people. It's kind and of like, this is mine. <laughs> um, and so for me, it's, it's acknowledging my emotions. Uh, I also, in the very beginning, this is a, a good tip. In the very beginning, I was really scared. I was like, I didn't know how was he going to interact with me? How are people going to treat this? And so I made a backup plan. So that if I showed up and I was uncomfortable, I had a friend to call and I had a means of leaving. And, um, and, that, and I'd never had to, fortunately, but I had that backup plan and, I, and it made me feel safer. I also reached out to, you know, another girlfriend, um, ironically, who lost her husband and around the the same year and um, called her and said, hey, I'm going to show up at this time. You show up at this time. And and she's friends with both of us. And and that was helpful, too. So I learned to take care of myself, knowing how I was going to react and how anxious I would feel walking into that situation. So having a plan and having someone you can call if it goes awry so you can Mm -hmm. vent and get validation and you know, put yourself back together and, and move on. So no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think having, I like the having an escape plan because I feel like with anything that you're feeling anxious about, and I know, I mean, I suffer from anxiety. I have a bunch of friends that also do just having, it's not even that you're going to use the escape plan necessarily, but just having it is almost like a comfort, like a, like a security blanket, you know? Mm And it's okay. It's hard to ask, but it's okay to ask a friend and say, Hey, I'm feeling really anxious about this. Most, you know, if they're a friend, they're probably going to understand and walking into it, you know, differently with, with this, like you said, an escape plan and a backup plan and, and, um, caring for self in the midst of all of that. And so unfortunately I've never had to use it, but there, you know, it's, it's easier each year. Um, you know, we, we share three daughters and so we have, uh, it's fewer and fewer times, but in the beginning, we had a lot of, you know, we had graduations, we had my oldest daughter got married, there were lots of times that we were in the same space. And I, I'm not perfect, I did my very best to keep my reactivity on the inside. Again, having a girlfriend to call after if I, you know, needed to vent um, in order to navigate through because my focus was I wanted my children. I don't want my children to feel uncomfortable. They do already. (laughs) I bet. It's just just the nature of it, I would imagine. Yeah. And I feel like um, we've done as good as we can, a fairly good job of, of being in the same space and putting those, keeping those, keeping those feelings and emotions and our own grievances out of the space. 
being in the same space, I feel like we've done a really good job, um, the best that we can. It's still awkward for our daughters at times. And they've, um, the amazing thing about my daughters is I've discovered through the divorce that they have really good boundaries. And I say that laughing because sometimes it stings a little bit when they stop them. <laughs> and it, there's a part of me that stings. And then this other part of me is like, this is so amazing. I wish I'd known how to do that at your age. Um, they're all in their twenties. And, uh, that's been, you know, that's been hard too, is, is watch, you know, knowing that they have to set those boundaries sometimes. And that doesn't feel good as a mom and a therapist that I've put them in a position that they've had to language that to me. Uh, but they do. And I appreciate it and I honor it. And, you know, I'm about making everybody feel comfortable in the room and I can put aside, I can act like nothing's wrong. I, unfortunately from my childhood, that's, you know, comes from my childhood. So I can act like nothing's wrong and, you know, really calm self before I walk into a situation where I know I might feel, you know, it might feel awkward uh, with the people that are there. Um, That's great. I think, you know, everyone does their best. And I think just the nature of the situation, it's going to be awkward. I think no matter what with divorce or loss, like I try to break the awkwardness with humor. Um, I, that's kind of my go-to and, you know, I, I always, you know, taught whenever I talk about say Tommy and I refer to him as my late husband, I said, Oh, I hate referring to him as my late husband. Cause he's always on time. You know, he was, he was always on time. He was never late. And, uh, you know, it puts people at ease a little bit knowing, and my close friends know that they can talk freely about, you know, Tommy or Charlie, and I'm totally fine. I'm not going to break down bawling or anything like that. Um, One of the main feelings that I have heard from a lot of people that have dealt with loss is guilt. Mm -hmm. And the guilt specific to divorce is no matter if they wanted the divorce or they didn't want the divorce. If I have friends that initiated the divorce and they feel guilty on, um, in their words, tearing their family apart or, you know, oh, well, I could, maybe I could have done more before starting the divorce process. On the other side, you know, they might feel guilty. What did I do? Was I not did I not do something? Did I, could I have done something to improve the situation where they didn't want a divorce? So there's this guilt that a lot of people carry, and that's a very heavy emotion. So very what heavy. is your um, opinion or advice to people on how to deal with carrying that guilt? Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, as a therapist, um, the, the biggest factor, as you probably know, is time. Guilt kept inside eventually festers. And so I'm a big proponent of talk therapy. I am, or a divorce support group to process and to say out loud is really risky to say out loud. I feel bad for the way I behaved in the marriage, or I had a part in the process, whether it was passively or even actively is a huge courageous and risky statement. And so I encourage clients, which is exactly what I did, is to see, you know, if they're seeing me, is to let's look at what are the things that he or she complained about in the marriage. Not like we're agreeing with them, but are there uh, parts of those that we can work on together? And guilt being one of them. Where does the guilt come from? 
what are you processing? A lot of times there's fear and sadness associated with guilt is, you know, we, we, we walk through the whole thing of why do you feel guilty? Not like it's wrong because I think you're right, Rachel, no matter whether you wanted the divorce or not, it takes two to make a marriage work. It also takes two for it to fall apart. So it's not a one-sided thing. And, and I know some listeners may not like that, especially if their spouse had an affair, they feel blindsided. It's, you know, I'm not saying I'm not laying fault. I'm saying that we have a part in it, whether it's, you know, not asking questions of our spouse or assuming that no conflict is okay, you know, that you're, you know, that, that you're going through. So the biggest way is, is through talking about it and actually opening up about it and acknowledging that it's there. That's a huge thing. And then processing and how to realize what you were responsible for without fault and what you can do differently as you move forward. And that's how, what helps it. So it's like, a, it's like my daughter when she was in high school and she came home one day and I don't remember the context. She said something like, you know, I, I got in trouble, not got in trouble. So something happened and, and she, she felt bad because she didn't know that that was protocol or something. And I remember saying to her, okay, so of course you didn't know. How many times have you done this? You know, how many times have you divorced <laughs> in this case is of course you didn't know, but now you do. And when you do, then we get to work on moving forward and staying connected with that guilt in a way that moves us forward and, and helps us grow. I, th- I saw it as a growth opportunity, not at first, but I saw it as a growth opportunity. And I took the things that my ex-husband complained about and I went to therapy and I talked about them and I didn't agree with them. And then I did. And then I, you know, I wrestled with it and came to a conclusion of like, okay, moving forward, if I want to be a good candidate for a relationship, these are things I get to work on and it's not going to hurt me to do so. Yeah. And I think, I mean, everyone can work on some aspect of themselves, right? I mean, (laughs) I feel like there's always, there's always room for growth, but that's a really great point in, in making those growth opportunities and seeing, and that's not easy either. That's a lot of work. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not the staples easy button that we want to slam down and say done. It is a, it's like going to the gym is, you know, when we go to the gym at first, we talk to the sales agent. We don't go all the way back to the back of the room where the 300 pound weights are and start lifting. We take our time and ease into it. And it's a muscle building exercise for sure. And, and processing the loss and the sadness and pain um, usually comes first. And then we can look at ourselves and say, you know, what is happening? What can I do to move forward? Staying in that place um, creates complicated grief and it keeps us stuck if we, if we don't, if we don't process. Therapy isn't the end all to things, but I do believe it's a, it's a great way to transition. Absolutely. And speaking of moving forward, so say you have gone through a divorce or a loss and now you're ready to open or you think you're ready to open yourself up again. Um, I say think because sometimes <laughs> it's like sticking your toe in the water. You're like, I think I'm ready to jump in. And then you stick your toe and you're like, nope, it's too cold. Gotta, nope. gotta wait a little bit. Um, so how, I guess the question would be number one, what are some signs that maybe you are ready to move forward and open yourself up to another relationship and to, um, I guess what, what do you do once you're in there if you have feelings of grief about, and you touched on it a little bit before, but how do you deal with that grief while also in a relationship? 
Mm, good question. And I'm going to go backwards a little bit because this is one of those do what I say, not what I did moments. I thought I was ready nine months after we separated. I thought I was ready. I got back. I got online for the first time. Granted, I'd been married for 27 years. Had no idea how to navigate that world. Thought I was ready and I was I was detaching. Um, the divorce paperwork was final. Um, I was ready to move on. <laughs> oh my goodness. Not at all. I got into a relationship pretty quickly after, I think it was my fifth date, you know, fifth person that I dated, got into a relationship really quickly and it was not a good fit. And because I, I'm, I'm a person, I stick with it. I try to, you know, before I don't quit. Um, I did all the wrong things, tried to push my daughters into getting to know this person. I mean, I did everything wrong. So this is a do what I say, not what I, what I did moment. Tip, putting your toe in the bathwater. I don't know. It's different for everyone, Rachel, but I do believe that taking a period of time and not involving yourself with in another relationship to connect with yourself, and it's hard to, to articulate what that is like. Connecting with self is really being mindful of your triggers of the, you know, for some people, the fear of being alone, for some people, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the best. I don't ever want to, you know, meet somebody because I love being single. I wasn't that person. I was more anxious because I really had been in a relationship since I was 21. I, I didn't know any different. And my kids left, me and my last daughter left for college um, when the divorce happened. So, um, so you're ready. It's a gut feeling, learning to trust your gut. It's also a, a process of when the intensity is not an everyday, all day thing, when you're not thinking about the loss every day, all day, when you find days where it's like, oh, I didn't even think about it. And, um, you know, I, I rely on, on my friends, not, not to tell me if I'm ready, but just really like, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And I think it's, um, I don't believe in forced aloneness. Like you've just got to white knuckle through the being alone and living in a place by yourself, or if you have children at home, like adjusting to being a single parent. Um, so for me, I was an empty nester. So I'm gonna talk about empty nester versus those with children at home. There's two camps uh, of thought with children at home is introduce them sooner than later, like on a playground as this is a friend. Then there's the camp of don't introduce until it's something more serious. I don't know that I hold either way, but I think both have merit. You know do your kids respond to this person? Um, I would say that they need time to grieve too. So I would definitely, in my, in, in my opinion, I would wait to introduce them to somebody new until, until the divorce is final. You've gotten to a place of being able to support your children in their own reactivity and sadness and grief. And, um, you know, your partner, whoever you're dating understands that this is a process and it takes time. If you don't have children at home, like I didn't, my, my kids were all off, um, introducing them was, too, it was too soon. They were all adults and it was too soon. They were grieving the loss of their parents' marriage um, and, you know, the thoughts of wanting us to get back together and things like that. So I think you're ready when you have processed the grief. And, um, and I say that I, I think out loud is best, whether it be with a friend, with a support group or with a therapist or coach, you've processed the grief, you've given yourself time to experience being alone or a single parent and the loss of identity. 
there's a lot that's, that's a, a, a part of grief that we don't talk about is the loss of identity um, as a married person, maybe as a mom, you know, or a dad. And the internal um, ability to to respond to those triggers, whether it be from your ex, your children, or things in the world that allows you to move forward. So you can feel the loss, you can feel the fear, but rather than grasping at something like when we're hungry and we grab for the first thing available and it's not always the healthiest choice, is knowing that you're not doing that. For those that are avoidant and are like, I don't ever want to see anybody again, they know they're ready when they're when they're willing to take a risk and open themselves up. And that starts with friends and family and then can move into, you know, a romantic relationship. So I'm not giving you specifics because I do believe it's a gut thing. And I highly encourage people to have somebody walk alongside them in the journey, someone who knows them and can say, yeah, I think you're ready. I think, you know, you're in a place because I don't think we're ever a hundred percent ready until we get out there. Mm-hmm. And as you have shared on, you know, the online, little bit of online dating you did, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, I'm sure I was this person for other people too, is there's, there's a variety of people out there. Don't go for the snack, y'all. <laughs> Don't go for the snack, right? You're right. I happen to, I happen to, happen to be in a relationship with a snack, uh, but <laughs> But it, <laughs> we can say that. I, I don't know if he's going to listen to this, but he might hear it. I, I, you're right. Don't just go for the good looking, the check the boxes on paper. Um, I hired a coach to get out there because of my mistakes. And That's I had smart. someone who was on speed dial and I could call and she helped me understand. Um, I'm a heterosexual and she helped me understand um, how men think, heterosexual men think and how they fall in love. And it was eye opening for me. And she also was able to slow me down in, you know, I have a tendency to trust too soon or be loyal too soon. Mm-hmm. And um, people get to earn the right to be in the arena with me. And once I had started having that attitude, Rachel, I had so much fun. I met a lot of wonderful men. Not all of them were romantic interests. I did things that I hadn't done in years. I flew a kite with someone. I, I dated a skydiver. I mean, there were, there were a lot of fun things that I got to do. And I, I made it a year of yes, where I said yes to a lot of things that scared me. Of course, I had my therapist and my friends processing on the side. I think you know when you fully processed the emotions around it and you understand them and you also understand how to react to them rather than grabbing for the first thing or pushing away, you know, saying like, Oh, I tipped my toe in and it was too hot and I'm out. That That's a sign that you're not ready. Right? Yeah. And I Absolutely. did, that. I set up a profile, got an inundation of, you know, um, of uh, messages. And I was like, <gasps> and turned it off. Like I yeah. got, this is too much. You know, how do you navigate and sort through? So That's very difficult. Yeah. Online dating is awful. I mean, I think there is great things about online dating. And I, I you know, like you, I met some really great people. Um, and I just, but there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I need more time. I said that to someone who I met and we got along great. Like we were, you know, we had a great time. Like we went out and did fun stuff together. But I ended up just calling him one day and I said, you know what? I thought I was ready, but I'm just not ready. And he totally said, yeah, no, that's totally fine. And I'm, if you ever want to go and do fun stuff, I'm around, you know, no that's pressure. Really 
That's yeah. really great. I think we attract what we attract people that fit our where we're at in our journey of, of self worth. Mm-hmm. And um, as I've helped, you know, build that, I, I do believe that's a big thing too. You, you know, you asked, how do you know you're ready? When you're ready, when you don't need that external validation from a, from a partner to tell you that you're a snack, a good catch, a, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, when you don't need that. And affirming self, it's like a reparenting of self is really helpful. And that's, you know, that's a journey in and of itself. So. Absolutely. And one of the things that you you mentioned and that I really wanted to touch on was the loss of identity that mm-hmm. occurs during any loss. I, I know that was a huge thing for me and I described it in the past episode as a second adolescence. You don't know who you are anymore. Um, it's exciting and really scary and you have all these new opportunities, but at the same time, you're scared of what could happen or, mm-hmm. you know, what if you're, like you said, fear of being alone and trying to find who you are again. And I think trying to control that spontaneity that comes back from your teenage days, like that's that's what I struggled with was this weird second adolescence. And I know a couple of people have mentioned the same thing. So how do you start to rebuild your own identity around yourself rather than me plus this other person? Mm. First of all, I love that. I I may borrow that if I have your permission. The second adolescence, absolutely. And, um, up until you and I talking about it, I hadn't really thought about it as uh, that th- what that's like. And I think men and women both go through that. It's like a I have freedom. I have, and it's not just about the dating world. It's about you know I can leave a dish in the sink if I want to, or I can. I mean, having I had been so structured raising children then in grad school, then building a practice that my, there was so much structure that having no structure was actually very scary for me. And so, um, but then, you know, I, I've gotten used to it. I like it. <laughs> and that second adolescence, you know, how to get through that. I would say that again, having someone alongside your journey to help navigate, because we are going to, you know, when we're adolescents, we don't always choose the healthiest option. We choose what feels good. And what feels good isn't always what's best for us. And so, you know, for a lot of women and men, it's jumping into either a sexual or a romantic relationship, highly cautioned not to, even though it feels good and it's validating and, and all of that, it really, you're not ready emotionally for it. So, and then I don't know what you did in your second adolescence, but I, I, I did a whole bunch of different things, some of them not so healthy for me. And I made some mistakes and I tried a bunch of new things and, and some of them were really amazing. And I've kept, you know, kept them in my um, coping mechanism and other ones weren't. Uh, I think if you have a support system who can say, is that the best option for you? And you're open and vulnerable with them. That can be helpful because we don't always choose. And then you come out of it and you realize, okay, uh, at least for me, okay, I know what I want. I know what's going to work in my life. I know what I need to have in place in my life. Putting those into place before you meet a partner is really helpful because then you're set and they get to join like, okay, is this person going to fit for me? It's like a a cute shoe. It might be a cute, you talked about a snack. It might be a cute shoe, Mm -hmm. but are they a good fit for you? You know, sometimes the most latest shoes out there don't always necessarily fit my feet, but I want them because they're so cute. Right. And I've, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, 
I made some really good choices too. And I'm really glad that I went to therapy and I processed some of those and with my therapist, um, who I still see now and then, and, you know, highly recommend having one on call so that you can get in whenever you need to. Um, what did you do? You know, I'm curious about that. Cause I'm just new. This is a new thought for me. This second adolescent. Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I had all these plans to do things and then I kind of chickened out. Like I was like, I'm going to go tour the country in my car and it's just going to be me and my dog and we're going to drive around the country. And I just had this like urge to leave, but I also had this um, fear because of, I had pretty bad uh, PTSD symptoms at the time Mm. where I would zone out, like completely zone out. I was afraid of zoning out while driving. I was afraid of being, I would get these periods sometimes where I would completely forget where I was. Like I was so just brain on overload. And so the fear of being in a situation where I'm literally standing and have no concept of where I am or who I am, it's like I completely detached from reality. Mm-hmm. That scared me enough to kind of keep me grounded. And then I had a trip planned to go spread uh, Tommy and Charlie's ashes in the Redwoods. Um, and that one actually was about to happen until uh, everything set on fire that year. It was oh. 2017. Uh-huh. And everything like went on fire, including the area that I was going to go camp. So mm-hmm. I had to cancel my um, trip. But um, those were a couple of the trip aspects. Um, I dated pretty soon after my loss of Tommy. Mm-hmm. I think um, more, I didn't really anticipate like getting into a relationship. I just really like doing stuff with people. And yes. I felt like the awkwardness of people that I knew was impeding my ability to have fun because I felt like I always had to, like you, had to make my friends feel better. And I just wanted to kind of escape out of that. I didn't want to have to make anyone feel better. I just wanted to go do like, go to the movies with someone, go out to eat with mm-hmm. someone and and do those sort of things. So I dived pretty hardcore into online dating, had some really interesting experiences <laughs> with people. That's some a whole nother podcast, right? That's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Um, but, you know, I, I did make mistakes and uh, there were things that I did that I wish I didn't do. There were definitely times where I put myself in a dangerous situation that I, you know, definitely could have not done. Uh, thankfully, nothing happened. But, you know, thinking about like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know, like I, I, that could have ended really badly for me. Um, and I did have a friend who who was kind of like my hey, Rachel, that's probably not a good idea kind of person. (laughs) Um, But something that a fellow widow posted a couple days ago, because I I, I do periodically struggle with, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I said that. I can't believe, you know, that kind of uh, thinking of, of that time. But the post was, don't blame yourself for things that you did while you were in survival mode. Right. And it's I, about forgiveness and compassion for self. We, Brene Brown, Rachel says that in, I think it's Rising Strong, where she has a whole chapter of, do you think people are doing the best that they can? And my answer was no, when I was reading it. And then she has a whole argument about how we do the best that we can with what we have available to us, in this case, emotional support or, you know, navigating our emotions. 
with what we have available at the time. And so self-compassion, I'm one of those, yep, I made a mistake. I feel horrible about it. Moving on. Gonna, gonna use this as a growth opportunity. And I know you are too. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to get there. I think um, meeting Adam, he was very grounding for me because I'm in this second adolescence and a lot what what's been interesting for me in a relationship dynamic is the fact that i i used to be very type a very structured very um you know organized and stringent on everything and then as i got into after the loss of tommy and i got into a new relationship i found that i took on a lot of attributes of tommy in that um being spontaneous and creative and um kind of the more laid back chill one. And Mm. I, I think that's why um, Adam felt so grounding to me because he is more, you know, the organized type A type person. And so it's, it's very, it's a very interesting change in relationship dynamic, but I think that's um, what allows you to relax because Mm -hmm. he was taking charge of certain things that have always been your, your wheelhouse. That's amazing. Absolutely. And so that's, I think, that's what kind of helped me get out of my second adolescence. Although I still feel like sometimes the, I'm, I'm a little bit more spontaneous than I was for sure. But um, I definitely am more, um, more spontaneous. I was definitely a structured, I, I'm still a type A um, person and I like structure. It gives me, you know, I've always had it even growing up. My parents were super, super strict. So structure is kind of a, fam- you know, it's a familiar, comfortable place. I've also let go of some of that and I'm more open and I can be, my children are out of the house. It's a little bit different. Um, and I can be, and I know that my friends have told my partner, Pete, um, many, many times, like, this is not the Kim that we've known for 20 years. Like, no way. She was much more closed-minded about things. She was very focused on raising her kids. And so, like I said, some of that happened with the empty nest. It would have happened anyways, whether we stayed married or not. Um, we had talked about things we were going to do, you know, when the kids left the house. And they were very different than, than um, you know, than what we had done while we were raising them. And so some of that happens naturally. You mentioned trips. That is, I I didn't think about this, but during my adolescence, my second adolescence, that was my big thing. I had friends making fun of me. I was gone all the time. I flew, you know, I flew, I, for my 50th, my best friend and I, we planned a three week trip to Europe and we did it with points and on a budget and super low cost. And we had the best trip. Never would have done something like that if I was married, because, you know, of course you're married, you're not going to leave your spouse and your children for three weeks. So that was amazing. I, you know, when I finally got, got through my emotions and got out of that relationship that was negative for me and processed it and took some time for myself and then hired a coach, I went on 27 dates in six months and I did a spreadsheet. Thank you. I'm very, (laughs) that's amazing. It's a, it's a known thing with my friends. They, they laugh about it. Um, you know, my partner, Pete knows about it. Um, he's on it. He was number 24, <laughs> believe it or not, of 27. And I learned to process, how do I feel when I'm with this person? And I opened myself up to a lot of, you know, I had a guy text me and say like, Hey, would you like to do this? Sure. And I did it. And I was scared sometimes, but I did it with the knowledge of like, I know how to protect myself. I know how to keep myself safe. And that's so grounding. And I was, I, I, like I said, I met some amazing men 
not all of them were a good fit. I'm sure I wasn't a good fit for a lot of them too, obviously, you know, here I am. And number 24, one. That's so great. I'm so happy that you found someone that you totally, I I can see you're just glowing whenever you're talking about him. You just have this like smile ear to ear. So that's amazing. He's the laid back one, which is, you know, for me is allowed me to, um, you know, just, I've learned to chill. I've learned to relax into things, to wait on things. I tend to be like, do it right now kind of person. And, um, he accepts me for who I am. He knows all of my history. Um, I've shared it with him. He said, and a couple other guys have said this too, you know, I'm more interested. And I think you said this on your podcast with Adam. Adam said this, I'm more interested in who you are today and how you got there than what you've done in the past. And Mm -hmm. that was, that was really healing for me. Yeah, I think it's important too to approach I think any relationship even friendships that way is just who are they now? You know, cuz I have friends that have struggled in the past with a lot of different things like addiction or mm-hmm. you know, relationship issues in the past but they've really grown and learned and worked on themselves extensively and they are some of the strongest, resilient people that I know. Um so I really feel like diamonds are created with lots of pressure and heat and uh, explosions and, you know, so, that. yeah. <laughs> so I think those are some of the most interesting people are people who have been through a lot of things. Absolutely. Those are the people I want to hang out with. You know, I, you know, if, if, if you're perfect and I don't know anybody that is, but if you're perfect, we're probably not going to be good friends. Cause I, I don't know how to relate to that um, as a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Recovering perfectionist. Yeah, I am. I am. So one of the things that we did, I wanted to bring this up, and I'm sure this is part of, of the grief too, is um, losing time with your kids. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Huge thing. Um, you know, especially in creating a parenting plan, a lot of my clients, you know, express like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do in those three, two, three, four, you know, week long times without my children? And we process the pain and the loss and the fear that comes up. It's also an opportunity to really connect with yourself, to connect with others. And as you get used to it, you can find a great deal. I mean, there's, there's, there's all sorts of opportunities that come up. Um, but that's one of the biggest, biggest things that a lot of my clients grieve is the loss of time with their kids. There's also in a reverse order, um, usually the parent that was a primary caregiver was the primary caregiver. And there's usually one, some, some, you know, a lot of families now are doing a lot of co-parenting in a much different way. And I think it's lovely and wonderful, but those who have a more traditional one parent or the other was the primary caregiver. All of a sudden in divorce, that other parent decides I want a relationship with my children and it can be a source of hurt for clients. And another thing to grieve, how come you weren't there when we were married? How come you weren't as involved? And I try to help clients understand if you're, if they're on that end of feeling like, you know, why, why all of a sudden are you changing all of this? Um, to understand that it's an opportunity for growth for them and that it is best for kids to have access to both parents, albeit not in an abusive situation, but it is best for kids to have access. Kids eventually learn who we are as parents as they grow, whether you stay married or not. And they begin to see that you're not this end all and you're not perfect. And so that's a natural development transition. And, and parents are worried like, well, what if, you know, are they going to, they going to think I abandoned them? Are they going to, 
think that, um, that I'm not there for them. And that's one of the biggest things that I've, I've worked on with clients in the office is um, how to navigate that loss. Um, your, I want to say this very, very clearly is that your children want to have a relationship with both of you and your absence does not inform them. Um, I, when I say absence, I mean, temporary absence with, you know, with a parenting plan does not, it, they, they, they will be okay. Mm-hmm. If both parents are on board about supporting, like you're at my house and yes, you can call mom or dad and, and, and help mitigate that transition. Uh, that, that can be helpful too, but it also, it's an opportunity for you. They want, your kids want, it's good for them to have relationships with both parents and they want that. And so allow your, t- allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to cry and feel it. Um, you know, feel some of that, you know, turn the remote off of that channel of grief if you're not ready to deal with it in that moment and take the opportunity to really reconnect. A lot of us lose our identity. I was a mom and a wife and, um, you know, and a therapist, but that came third mom and a wife. And then all of a sudden my last child's going off to college. She's in a transition period. She's not needing me. No one's here. My other two children lived out of town (laughs) at the time. So no one was here. And I lost my identity as a wife. I was more of a, you know, we had traditional roles just by choice. So it just kind of happened. I didn't mind. I cooked. I did most of the cleaning. He did the outdoor stuff, um, was the primary breadwinner for many, many years while I stayed at home. And so that whole shift was so different for me. And um, I'm really grateful for having to wrestle through that alone time to kind of discover I am a courageous person. I used to think of myself as very fear-based. I'm really courageous and I'm badass and I'm a catch. <laughs> yes, I you are. That. And I was a good mom and I made mistakes. I made mistakes, but I know that I, I did my very best. Um, detaching from your ex's view of you is another piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. When, you know, I was married for 27 years. We were together for 29, if you include the dating period, 28 if you include the dating period. And during that time, you do tend to meld and, and pay attention to what your spouse thinks of you and, um, and, and, you know, interact with them of their needs and what your needs are. And detaching from his view of me has been, I will say, has been the longest part of my journey is, you know, he may have, he's going to have a, a frozen view of me when we got divorced and who I was and even though I've grown, he hasn't seen the growth and he's going to see things through that lens. And so I've had to detach and grieve that I'm not ever going to be able to have him see me the way that I see myself or the way I have a faith God sees me. And that's been one of the longest journeys is, is learning to, okay, he has this view of you. He's going to continue to have this view of you. And you get to decide who you are in the midst of that. And I have a question for you based mm-hmm. off of that. Um, especially with, say, situations of infidelity, I feel like there's a huge loss of self-esteem. Like, I wasn't good enough. Why wasn't I good enough? And I'm having some friends that are going through this right now. Mm -hmm. And how do you, I guess, start to rebuild this identity and, and this confidence back? Because, I mean, in the vast vast, 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 99.9% of of the time, um, the infidelity has absolutely nothing to do with that person um, and and something that they did. It's something outside of that. So how do you 
kind of fig- figure that out in, in within yourself? So it's about looking at, I love that you asked that because infidelity is, is a big cause of divorces in marriages. Um, it doesn't have to be. And I have helped many, many couples reconcile and rebuild trust. Uh, but oftentimes it is. And, um, you know, it's just the nature of what happens. Part of, part of rebuilding yourself is realizing that it's not, like you said, it's, it's about the dynamic in the marriage. And I'll explain that in a minute the dynamic in the marriage, and it's not about you, the person who stepped outside of the marriage to to have an affair for whatever reason is it's, they had other choices. They had other choices to say, I'm unhappy. And maybe they tried, maybe they tried to say that, but there are other ways to shake up a marriage to, you know, get, get the care and love and and things that you need. Um, And rather than going to in all the different types of affairs is, if you're the person that has been cheated on, it is not about your looks, who you are as a person. Um, uh, it may be about the dynamic in the marriage. Was there an openness and transparency? Did it feel okay to come and say, I'm unhappy or this is a part of our relationship that I don't like? That's super risky to do, right? We could get rejected. Our partner could get defensive. They could ignore us. They could be in denial. And so oftentimes people keep it to themselves and then they get the validation and attention from someone else or, you know, work can be an affair as well uh, from some other, you know, stepping outside the marriage and they don't, they stop working on trying to get that in their marriage. So if you're the person that's been cheated on, rest assured, it's not about you as a person. It's about the dynamic, partially about the dynamic that got set up and that own person's ability to cope who had the affair. You know, were they coming and saying, I really want to work on this. I'm not feeling like I'm getting my emotional needs met. Most people don't. They don't know how to do that, um, which is where I come in and help them with that. And my couples who have recovered um, have found, you know, that's a common thing. The person who was cheated on has to work through their self-esteem. And again, Rachel, you're talking to a therapist. So of course I'm going to encourage and advocate for uh, talk therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk. yeah, yeah. I mean, talk therapy is, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of it. I think I mention it almost every single episode. (laughs) Talk to a therapist, please talk to a therapist because I think, Relying on friends and family is great, but they don't always know how to react or say the thing that you need to hear in that moment. Um, or they might do the opposite and say something that you really didn't need to hear at that moment, and it actually has a bad effect. So, And don't put that, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on those people too, if you come to them with something that maybe you really need to talk to a therapist about, and it can affect that relationship because they're like, hey, you know, I feel really uncomfortable giving you advice here. Cause I just don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, a third party who's not emotionally connected to the system that you're in and we're all in systems, you know, our friendship systems, our family systems, our, you know, dyad systems of just, you know, you and your partner or you and your ex-spouse, you and your children. And I do, you know, I, therapy is one of, you know, I say that in every single one of my blogs at the end is, you know, if you need help, reach out, doesn't have to be me, but reach out to a therapist and process the pain. It doesn't, you know, I think there's less stigma about therapy, but there's still some stigma like, oh, I'm, I don't need that, especially for men. I've found Mm -hmm. that men who come to my practice who are contemplating or going through a divorce, they typically stay for maybe six sessions at the most and they get what they need. 
um, women tend to stay a little bit longer because there's a different socialization of the emotional process. And, um, you know, I normalize that, you know, you know, you can be in therapy as long as you need my job to be out of a job, but you can stay and you know, I'm here as long as you need me is what I tell my clients. So talking about it's really helpful as well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. This has been such an informative conversation and I know it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. So I really very much appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Rachel. And one last thing I want to say is uh, creating a gratitude journal and um, discovering affirmations that you can read to yourself every day can be really helpful. It's like reparenting yourself in a way of anything that you would want someone to say to you, you can say to yourself. Things like, I'm not 100% responsible for the end of my marriage, only 50% at most. Um, I'm ready for, to forgive myself for this. Or, you know, I've always been a unique, powerful, and creative human being. No one can take that from me. Those are really powerful when you say them out loud. So that's great. And thank you so much. I love ending on, on those positive notes. So absolutely. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And if you want to learn more about Kimberly Sandstrom, I'm going to have her uh, contact information and link to her website on uh, gooddaysbaddays.show. So go to her episode and there'll be uh, a bunch of resources under there. Thank you everyone for listening.